Well, good morning. A church in Dallas went through a major division, a major split. And they began to argue over who got the property. Well, as this argument went on, they decided to take it to the courts, and they had a lawsuit against one another. The courts themselves said, you know, it's not the province of the court to decide such matters until the case has been heard through the denomination's own court. A wise decision, I think. So the dispute was remanded to the ecclesiastical court, where eventually the decision was made to award the real estate and properties to one of the groups. The losers withdrew and formed another church nearby. Church growth, the American way, Kent Hughes writes. It was reported in the Dallas newspapers, no doubt with some delight, that the church court had traced the trouble to its source. Where did this division begin? The trouble began when, at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. Oh, boy. You know, we find stories like that humorous, even absurd, really. But we understand in some level, don't we? Because most of us have experienced, if we've been in the church very long, pretty petty little divisions and conflicts. And it's a sad testimony, unfortunately, to the world around us, whether it gets in the newspaper or not. Well, the church in Philippi had its conflicts and divisions too. In fact, if you read the New Testament, there were all kinds of struggles in the church. What we go through today is nothing new. And so, as we see in that original story about the ham, (laughs) real conflict, division in the church, always begins in the heart. It begins with our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness, our sense that I want things my way, and if I don't get it, then I'm upset. So if unity is to really happen in the church, then it has to begin in the heart, right? It won't do any good to create organizations and ecumenical groups and let's, let's organize so we get along if there hasn't been a change in the heart. Unity always has to begin there. You can't bring people together unless you first change their hearts. So today, in the passage we're looking at that Cynthia just read, we're looking at the heart of unity. What has to happen in the heart of every one of us if we want to experience the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for when he said, I pray that they would be one Father, as we, you and I, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are one. So Paul addresses the Philippian church and the Colian church and the American church and all of us and gives us some real guidelines that help us have a heart that promotes and sustains unity in these verses. It's one long conditional sentence, verses 1 through 4 in the Greek, And Paul is telling us if, that's a condition, if verse 1 is true, then 2 through 4 ought to be true as well. If one verse 1 is true, then the rest ought to be true as well. So let's look together at our resources for unity, the mind of unity, 
and then the barriers to unity. So begin with our resources for unity, verse 1, where Paul again says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or tenderness and compassion. Notice that Paul begins by bringing us back to what God has done for us. That's where unity begins, for us to focus on what God has done for us. We tend in divisions to focus on the problems with the other person. (laughs) But he brings us back and says, no, 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 focus on what God has done for us. He wants us to know that true unity, truly loving one another, always begins with his love for us. We have to have a firm grasp on that if we are to get along and love each other well. You see, if we're not plugged into that, then we're not going to be able to love one another. We've got to be firmly plugged into that. My sister was coming to visit us here in Boise from Oregon, and she was driving, and about on 84, near 10-mile road, her car just quit. She was with her kids. The car was dead. She called me up. I showed up, I looked in the engine, and I had no idea what was going on. (laughs) Yep, it's not working. (laughs) But there was a farmer working in the field right next to us. And he came over, saw that we were in some trouble. And he took a look, and honestly, it took him probably 30 seconds. He looked in there and he said, well, I see the bolts are loose on your fuel pump. You know, I bet if we tighten those down you'll be able to get going again. And so he tightened them down, started right up. She drove the rest of the way. She had plenty of gas, but she wasn't able to use it because she wasn't plugged into it. The fuel couldn't flow to the engine. It's the same with us in our spiritual lives. Unless we're plugged into the love of God, firmly grasping that, that can begin to flow through us if we are, and then we can accomplish what he's called us to accomplish. But if we're not plugged in there, we are going to be in trouble. We will get nowhere. And I think we talk a lot about wanting to get along, but we forget that he is our resource for getting along, for loving each other. And so we end up too often coming into the fellowship and we so much want the other people to meet our needs instead of resting in the fact he's already met our needs so now I can give my life away. It's a simple truth but one that we often miss in the body of Christ. That's where it begins. We've got to be firmly plugged in to him and that's why that's where Paul begins. I heard a number of years ago an illustration that's been helpful to me as I've thought about this. I heard it first in a book called How to Really Love Your Child by Dr. Ross Campbell, but I've seen it other places. It's used in sports psychology, and it's the idea that every person has an e-tank, an emotional tank, like a car has a gas tank. And every one of us have this e-tank. There are certain emotional needs that we all have that if those aren't met, we will be driven to try to get those needs met from other people, from our circumstances, from our worlds around us. And if our e-tank isn't filled up, we will begin to use and manipulate for our own ends. 
We all have an e-tank, like a fuel tank. We have emotional needs. Uh, psychologist Abraham Maslow said, described it this way, there's a hierarchy of needs. And unless your, your emotional needs are net, aren't, aren't met, unless they're met, you're not able to love other people well. You're not able to live unselfishly. I think Paul is saying the same thing here. We are driven to fill our e-tank, but if our e-tank is already filled by Christ, by his love for us, then we are free not to use other people, but to minister to them from the heart. It's a simple fact that psychologists have discovered and many others, but Paul is describing it for us here. And I see it all the time in counseling, especially in marriage counseling. A couple will come in and they're having conflict and difficulty. And as you begin to talk to them, you begin to realize they so much are looking to the other person to meet their needs, to fill their e-tank, to meet those emotional needs that every human being was created with. And they're trying to draw life from someone who's trying to draw life from them. And they're both functioning with empty tanks and the inevitable result is always going to be conflict. Always. So Paul sees that the answer is plug into Christ. Plug into the fuel tank that he offers us, his life in us, and then you are able to love others. You're able to have healthy relationships. He begins by showing us that we already have a full tank. We just need to know how to draw off the very life of Christ. So here's how he describes it. Now I want you to notice Paul's being, I think, a little sarcastic here. Uh, by the way, if there's any encouragement in being unified with Christ. Now, if you think about that statement, that is kind of sarcastic. In fact, that's so understated, it's incredible. Essentially what Paul's saying here is, look, Every human being needs encouragement. The word there is paraklesis. It's the word of, we need somebody we know is alongside us. We need encouragement on the way as we're struggling to get through life and we deal with the things we have to face in life and help to keep moving along the way. We need that kind of encouragement. Every human being needs that. But notice what Paul says about that. By the way, Philippians, Colians, <laughs> Christians... Is there any encouragement in Christ? Do you get any encouragement from your relationship with Jesus who is in you? Does it encourage you that Jesus loves you enough to die for you, to plant his spirit in you, to give you someone to walk with you and encourage you, that he now lives in you to be your strength, to be your friend, to be your life, and he empowers you to get through life? Is there any encouragement in the fact that you have the king of the universe who loved you enough to want relationship with you and says he will be with you every step of the way? He promises to never leave you or forsake you. He promises to be with you and to give you everything you need for life. By the way, is there any encouragement in that? Now, do you begin to see how foolish it is to try to draw that kind of encouragement from other people when you, we've already received all the encouragement we need in our relationships with him? So he says, is there any encouragement? 
And I think the answer is, of course, Paul, there's an overabundance. That's marvelous. Then he says, and by the way, is there any consolation or comfort of love? Every human being, just like we need encouragement, we need comfort in our pain, in our grief. We need someone to come alongside and be with us in our pain, someone who understands, who walks with us in our woundedness, in our losses, because we live in a broken world and therefore we experience great brokenness. And so Paul says, "Uh, by the way, do you have any comfort at all in your life? knowing how great his love is for you, that God loved you enough to send his son to die for you and to live as a human being so that every hurt you go through, Jesus understands. Every pain he knows. The losses and the rejection you feel in your life, Jesus knows he can comfort you because he went through greater loss and greater rejection than you because... He created all of us, and yet we turned our backs on him and rejected him and sent him to the cross. He went through more pain than you and I ever could, more rejection from those he loved, more loss. Knowing that he's with you and he comforts you every step of the way, is there any comfort in his love, Paul asks? And, of course, the answer is, oh, yes. And overabundance. And then Paul says, is there any fellowship in the Spirit? This is the word koinonia, what the Honduras team has on their shirts. Koinonia, to, to share life together. And he says, uh, you know, we all need fellowship. We all need community. We need a sense that others are walking through the same thing with us. That we're not alone. We need close, intimate fellowship with people who know us, with someone who knows us perfectly and loves us and accepts us anyway. And so Paul says, uh, do you find any of that, any fellowship from the Spirit who lives in you, who feels everything you feel, who walks through everything you walk through in life, dwelling in you, encouraging you, He's the comforter. He's the companion. He's the paraclete. He's the one who teaches you along the way. He leads you into the truth. He changes your thinking. He ministers God's love to you, reminds you of God's love. He's with you all the way. He will be with you as a companion forever and comforts and encourages you and convicts you and ministers God's love to you. You need someone to walk with you every step of the way? Well, is there any fellowship at all in the Spirit? (laughs) Oh, yes, there is, Paul. And then finally he says, is there any affection or tenderness and compassion? Again, for us to be whole human beings, to have our E-tank filled, we need to know that someone understands our emotional struggles. We need to know that someone knows our weakness, the sins that beset us, that we battle with, the difficulties of life, the suffering we face. We need to know that someone understands that to have our e-tanks filled. And Paul says, is there any tenderness and compassion, any of that, for in your relationship with God? 
Is there any tenderness and compassion in the fact that he loves you so much? He has a heartfelt desire for you and he pours his mercy on you. He sees your failings. He sees your weakness. And he accepts you fully and says, you're my child. Please come to me. Come into my arms. I understand your struggle. I understand your difficulty. I'm passionate to know you. I understand and I want you to come to me so we can be in fellowship together. Is there any tenderness and compassion in your relationship with him? And of course the answer is, oh yes. (laughs) There's an abundance. You see, Paul's saying, think about it, Philippians, Christians, Coleans. God is with you and if he is there, then your tank is full. Whether you feel like it or not, that's not the issue. The truth is, your tank is full. He fills it up. All that He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity, has made His resources available so that the very needs of our heart, the emotional needs that we all have, are meant to be filled in Him, not from our worlds around us, from people around us. And Paul is reminding us of that. He's, he's saying, God's met the deepest needs of your heart. Now trust him for that. No, the question is, well, I, God, if that's true, if, how do I tighten the bolts so that that life can flow? Because often I feel like I feel needy. I feel empty. And we all do, right? And part of what Paul's saying here is, the way you appropriate it, the way you tighten the bolts is by faith. Believing that what God says is true. My needs are met in you, Lord. Now I can step out and love others. Oh, I may not feel totally filled, but feelings are not the indicator. They're not the gauge. We tend to depend way too much on our feelings. And we look, well, uh, boy, I really feel empty, therefore I must be. But faith says, you know what, I feel empty today, but you know what, I'm not. Because God says he's there for me and he loves me and he's encouraging me. And so I'm going to hang on to the truth by faith. I'm going to trust that he is enough for me. And when you do that, it tightens the bolts. And the fuel begins to flow and you begin to experience his life because you're trusting in his life to flow through you. So the next step to unity, first, it's, it's reminding yourself that he is our resource and all the great encouragement and comfort and life we have in him. And then, then we need to understand the heart of unity, the next step to unity. And it all centers around our thinking. Verse 2, make my joy complete, Paul writes, by being of the same mind. It's literally thinking the same thing. You all are to think the same thing. You're to maintain the same love You're to be united in spirit. And the last phrase there, I know NIV says same purpose, but literally it's thinking the one thing. So the first phrase and the last phrase, thinking the same thing, thinking the one thing. That's the key to beginning to appropriate his life and really begin to experience unity with one another, to think the same thing. Now, how can that be? How can we all, in all our diversity, in all our different gifts and perspectives and backgrounds, how, what does it mean to think the one thing? Reminds me of the old movie, City Slickers, came out in 1991. You remember Curly, the cowboy character. He tells Mitch, he says, you know what the secret of life is? 
Mitch says, no, what? Curly says, this. And Mitch says, your finger? (laughs) Curly says, one thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else doesn't matter. That's a paraphrase. Uh, Mitch says, that's great, but what is the one thing? Curly says, that's what you've got to figure out. Well, similarly, Paul here is saying it's one thing. There's just one thing that we're to focus on. What is it? Well, it begins by, again, reminding ourselves that Jesus is all we need, ultimately. He's our life. He's our focus. But I think what he's getting at, the one thing we're to focus on is that we're all part of his kingdom. We're citizens, as we looked last week, of the kingdom of God, and therefore our one thing that we focus on is, Lord, I want your will to be done. I want you to, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. And as we all focus on that one thing, in all our diversity, and we're all working to make the kingdom of God expand and, be our, be, and do our part in that kingdom and be part of the kingdom of God, then we find that we are unified together. I really appreciate our music ministry here, the worship band that you just heard and the choir when we have that during the year. They've taken the summer off, but, but the incredible harmony that happens. How does that happen? It's because when they're working on a song, they're thinking about one thing, doing their part in that song. Now, if one of them said, you know, this is kind of nice, but I really want to sing this song. Or I want to play this song. Or I want to play this rhythm on the drums. What would happen? There would be disharmony. Same as happens in the body of Christ when we decide, well, you know, I want to do my thing. I want to focus on me and my needs. And, and we start living for our own agendas. What happens? There's disharmony in the body of Christ. But when we focus on one thing, let's do our part in the kingdom of God. Let's Let's play our part because that's what's important. That's where the director is taking us. Let's follow the director and do our part. Then there is beautiful harmony. I know when I feel conflict with Jeannie, and we feel that in our marriage. All of you do. It happens. Why? Because we're selfish and we start thinking our, our own agendas and we want things our way, etc. But, but when I go back and say, well, wait a minute, whatever this is that's the problem here, Our marriage is far more important than that. I'm not going to let this thing divide us. You see, I'm focusing on what's important in our marriage. It's true in the body of Christ that when we begin to feel conflict, to remember, know our unity in Christ, the kingdom of God is far more important than my petty little hurts. So I'm going to submit to you, Lord. Not my will, but yours be done. That's how unity happens because we're thinking the one thing, the kingdom of God, his will, not ours, and unity happens. Now, let me just say here as an aside, there, there are unavoidable divisions in the body of Christ. In the New Testament, we're given times that we are told to divide. But the only times I can think of are, number one, when there's unrepented immorality by a person. They will not turn away from it. 
or when there's clear heresy. It's clearly against the Scriptures. But even then, I think we can only enter into division after much prayer, with great sorrow, and with doing our best to seek reconciliation. Those are the only times and ways that I see in the Scriptures that we are to ever divide. Otherwise, we are to pursue unity, a heart of unity, thinking the same thing, focusing on what he says. Well, he goes on, Paul does, to give us the barriers to unity, the barriers to heart unity. Verse 3 says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, selfish ambition, vain conceit, vain pride. And really, that's the word that would summarize these, isn't it? What's the barrier to unity in the body of Christ? It's pride. It's our own pride. It's where our own heart says, I need to put myself first. I'm more important than this person or that person. But he calls that, Paul does, vain or empty conceit. He calls it this emptiness that thinks we're better than we are. But if you're plugged into the Father and you realize how awesome He is, then you don't put yourself on such a high pedestal. You see, you're able to remember that what's important is His kingdom, not what I want. But we tend to be selfish. We tend to promote our own selfish agendas. Let me read another story to you. This was from a Welsh newspaper. Yesterday, two opposition groups in a church that were, the church was looking for a new pastor. The two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns, and the congregation sang two, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into a bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman. Two policemen came in and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. Talk about an exciting worship service, huh? <laughs> they advised, the policemen advised the 40 persons in the church to return home. The rivals filed out, still arguing. Then last night, one of the groups called a Let's Be Friends meeting. It broke up in argument. Hmm. You see, it's when we get selfish and we want our way. We want our piece of ham. We want our guy to be exalted as a teacher or whatever it might be. Fill in the blank. That's what creates division in the body of Christ. And that's why Paul points to that here and says, don't live that way. And he gives us some encouragement on how to deal with that pride that comes out in every one of us at times. He says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. How do we deal with a heart of pride? Well, first of all, you tighten the bolts in Christ, right? You look to him. You're all I need. All my needs are met in you. I can rest in you, Lord, for that. Secondly, he says, choose humility. Choose humility. And he describes it this way, regard others as better than yourselves. Now, this really goes against the grain of our modern psychological perspective, doesn't it? Well, I can't love others until I love myself. So 
I really need to make sure my needs are met first and, and to consider others as better than myself? Oh, no, that's, that's not good. I have to take care of myself first. All that does is feed our own pride, and that is a modern psychological movement. That is not biblical. What's biblical is we are to choose humility and look at others and say, Lord, I choose to put this person above me. I choose to elevate them. I choose to look at what's good in them, not the things that bug me. You see, that's Christian maturity. And hear this very clearly. Christian maturity is where you see your own self and your sinful tendencies highlighted. But what you see in other people is what's good. And that's what you highlight about them. That is Christian maturity, where you're very aware of your own sinfulness, but you're very aware of others' strengths and gifts. That's what he's describing here, where you learn to consider others better than yourself. And if you've read any of the great saints throughout history, those who have known God in the best way, they've been very aware of their own sinfulness. And they've elevated other people above themselves. That's Christian maturity. So one barrier to heart unity is pride. Secondly, self-centeredness. Verse 4, don't look out for your own interests. Now my translation says do not merely look out for your own interests. But literally, the merely isn't there. It says don't look at your own interests, but look at the interests of others. You see, our tendency is to focus on our needs, our interests, our things. And the word therefore look at or look towards or look to is a Greek word, skopeo, where we get our word scope, to focus on, to scope out, to look intently at, is what it means. He says, what are you choosing to focus on? Your own things? That's self-centeredness. Or are you choosing to look at the needs and interests of others? To look at them, to focus on them. You see, if God is meeting all my needs, I'm plugged into Him, the bolts are tightened, the fuel is flowing then I don't have to worry about my own things. God's taking care of me, and I'm free to focus on you and your things and your needs and to give my life away for your sake. That's how to deal with self-centeredness, to focus on that so that you can begin to live differently. And let me just give you a picture of what that might look like. You walk into a Bible study. You walk into church. You walk in to meet with a friend for coffee, and this is your prayer. Lord, Thank you that you've met the needs of my heart. I I don't really feel that today. I feel kind of lonely. I feel kind of down. But by faith, I'm claiming what you say, that you have filled my e-tank. Thank you for your love of me, whether I feel that or not. So I want you to love this person through me, these people through me today. Lord, help me to put them above myself. Help me to focus on their needs their interests, not my own. You see, when we choose to live by faith in that way, no matter how we're feeling, God honors that and he comes through and he lives his life through us and loves others through us because we're living by faith, not by feelings, not by our circumstances. That's the heart of unity, folks. That's what it's about. A heart that trusts in God's great love for me so that I am free to give myself away, to not live by pride, to not live by self-centeredness, but to focus on the needs of others. And when that happens, 
the unity is incredible. And there's something else that happens besides unity. Paul puts it this way, verse 2, make my joy complete. You want joy? Learn to give your life away. You want to experience unity and fellowship? Learn to give your life away. That's how it happens. I want to close with one illustration from Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, some of you may not know, she lived for 45 years or so helping those who were dying in Calcutta. But what you may not know is for most of those 45 years, she experienced incredible spiritual dryness. She ached. It was difficult emotionally for her for those 40 years. But you know what? She chose to believe that God was enough for her, and she kept giving her life away. And Shane Claiborne, I quoted this book before, The Resistible Revolution, as a young man went to spend a year with Mother Teresa. And he writes this, People often ask me what Mother Teresa was like. Sometimes it's like they wonder if she glowed in the dark or had a halo. (laughs) She was short, wrinkled, and precious. Maybe even a little ornery, (laughs) like a beautiful, wise old granny. But there is one thing I will never forget. Her feet. Her feet were deformed. Each morning in Mass, I would stare at them. (laughs) I wondered if she had contracted leprosy, but I wasn't going to ask, of course. Hey, Mother, what's wrong with your feet? (laughs) One day, a sister came and said to us, Have you noticed her feet? We nodded, curious. She said, Her feet are deformed because we get just enough donated shoes for everyone. And Mother does not want anyone to get stuck with the worst pair. So she digs through and finds them and puts them on. And years of doing that have deformed her feet. Years of loving her neighbor as herself deformed her feet. Did she feel like doing that? No. But she trusted in God's resources and gave her life away. She gave her life away. You and I have the same spirit, the same God, the same resources, so that we can give our lives away for the kingdom of God as well. Let's pray. Lord, what a challenge this is for all of us. Because if we're at all honest, we confess that we're prideful, self-centered, selfish. We want things our way. But Lord, teach us, help us to live differently from this day forward. Choosing by faith to believe you are enough for us. You filled our e-tanks so that we can step out and truly begin to love others in a way that will bring unity and joy to us, to one another, and ultimately, Lord, to you. We thank you for this word. Change us through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.